Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, write a review, share with a friend, help us grow. Today we got Farb and Eddie, and in the booth we got our friend Mike Ponticelli, who is a DC entrepreneur and a born and raised Catholic conservative. He's been going through his own journey, reading Stamp from the Beginning and understanding the other side, but he's here to represent the conservative views on Black Lives Matter, defund the police, and the path forward from here. So listen up. All right, everyone, we're back. We've got a special guest that we're excited to introduce here shortly, but um, a bunch of you have been kind of sending in some questions and a recurring one that's been asked a, a few times now is obviously we geek out quite frequently on reconstruction and the new deal. And the question has been, are there any uh, good books or essays that uh, you all should be checking out? So I'll leave it to Professor Ed to jump into that one since that's his forte. But Ed, what, what do you got for the people? I mean, the true, true seminal text of Reconstruction has got to be W.E.B. Du Bois's um, Black Reconstruction that was written like early 20th century. But followed on from that is definitely Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction. Both of those books are like extremely long. I know you, you guys just finished Stamped. It's like that kind of length of a book. It's super crazy dense. But, you know, there's, you know, there, there's other books that use Reconstruction to like historicize modern stuff, whether it's, you know, sundown towns or whether it's modern voter suppression, like it all ties back to Reconstruction. But those two books are probably like the textbooks of that topic. But then the New Deal, I got to say, Ira Katznelson's Fear Itself. It's a really good deep dive into the New Deal. And then just like the politics of that time and, and how things shaped up with the Southern Bloc in the Senate and the grappling of getting policies passed and during, you know, the Great Depression and all that stuff. So Ira Katznelson's Fear Itself is really good. But then like the New Deal gets covered and everything else from like The Color of Money by Marissa Baradaran, who which Farb is, is almost done reading. And also the book The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which I'm super excited to see that is trending. He's he's been like a beast for so long. I'm I'm, I'm glad to see him finally getting his due. But those like use the New Deal to contextualize current inequality, whether it be economic or whether it be through housing and stuff. But Ira Katznelson, uh, Fear Itself is a good is a good book. Dope, and we'll we'll link those up on on this on this latest episode. But um, without further ado, uh, we have a good friend of the pod, Mike Ponticelli, joining us today. In trans full transparency, Mike and I have known each other for years. Uh, we went to undergrad together at George Washington University, even worked together for almost five years uh, at a startup uh, where he's a principal and still at. But we brought him on today because he grew up in a conservative family. He's definitely going through his own evolution as we all do within his own political views. But the pod's called Honestly Speaking. We're, we definitely admit at all times that we have blind spots to not knowing all the different angles and views that people are coming on. So we're pumped to have Mike on this morning and kind of just share some of his principles and also we kind of were chatting on the side that he just read Stamp from the beginning. A lot of you are reading Kendi right now. And so we thought this was a cool time to just kind of even chop that up as kind of a lens of how we're looking at some of the certain issues. And yeah, Mike, man, it's uh, it's good to have you on this morning. Thanks, guys. I'm a huge fan of what you're doing here. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm 
I am going through, a, uh, you know, a reexamination, uh, you know, myself, but just to give you know, some very basic context, you know, some people grow up and with their parents, whatever their parents or their whatever their origin political perspective is, and they go very far away from that. You know, they're, they, re they reject that and they end up on the other side of the spectrum. I'm actually the opposite. I actually, a lot of my parents' values actually kind of seep, again, they were in the water, you know what I mean? And I, they kind of seeped into how I think about the world. My mother was a Bush appointee, was in the Reagan White House. Uh, my father was a, is, was a Republican conservative lobbyist, not very successful. So I have lower middle class roots. When you hear lobbyists, you tend to think like, you know, tremendous wealth. That's not, that's not, that's, that's not part of, that is not part of my origin story. Um, but uh, my parents were, my mother was a civil servant. Um, but uh, but I, I, was grow, I, I grew up on, on neoconservative val Republican values. And, uh, and, from, and, and, I've, and I've kept those in my heart and they've shaped who I am. I'm not a Trump guy, and at no point in this conversation am I going to be apologizing for or defending, you know, Trump specifically as an individual. I was a Trump guy in 16. I probably won't be. I will most likely not be a Trump guy in this coming election. Just to just to throw that out there and get out in front of that. So the things that I'm passionate about are like the foundational philosophical values of Republican conservatism, rather than you know defense of the current administration, which I am not the guy to defend the the current administration. So if, you, if that's why you brought me on here, I'm probably disappointed. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, so I, I guess, I mean, what I could do is, you know, and in, in prep for this, you know, talking about how to agendize the conversation, because this is a very large conversation. And, and also, I want to apologize to any Republican conservatives who listen to this episode and probably think they could do a better job of defending the party than I can. Uh, I, apologize. <laughs> I apologize, guys. I'll give it my, I'll give it my college test. You're good, Mike. Um, you're good. Cool, cool, cool. So I, if, so what's the most helpful? I mean, I can tell you. Yeah, like I mean, look, I, I, I think what you kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit for me in the sense that, you know, we are products of our environments and our parents and these different things, right? And so you kind of set the stage on, you know, how, how you grew up. Um, so maybe like uh, push a little bit deeper into that. I'm just kind of curious as to like, as you were growing up, or even as you like, you know, we were both at a very liberal college. What were the, the things that you were like, you know, <laughs> wanting to push back on the, on what you were hearing around you and like why you, you, you stuck still to kind of like the ideals you grew up in? Like what were kind of those, some of those main pillars that you, you speak of? Sure, sure. So uh, foundationally, I think, you know, my, my operational psychology here, you know, foundational is that first of all, America, uh, that I'm deeply patriotic, that I love our country. And that our, that democracy might be a terrible form of government, but it's better than all the rest. You know, to to uh, to use that you know famous quotation. Actually, I don't even know who's who's a, who's attributed to, but I, I agree with that sentiment. Um, that that you know, uh, warts and all, that the United States Constitution and that the United States form of government is the best thing going, and that within the framework of the Constitution, and that within the framework of our government, we have all of the pieces to create an, a society. Uh, that has tremendous opportunity and that has more fairness and more openness and more opportunity than any other form of government that has ever been created. And that, that I am deeply patriotic and I love America. And I do think that even though we've had tremendous numbers of bad actors, people with good intentions who've acted in, who've ended up doing bad things uh, or people with good intentions who were just inefficient or, uh, or, or didn't achieve their goals that, and then we've also had bad people as well. We're, we're humans that the American system is, is a, is a, a wonderful system and that the American system is so good that if you are in America, that the American dream, conservatives are deeply, are deeply in love with the American dream. And that if you show up on our shores, if you are washed up 
with you know two dollars in your pocket and just the shoes and clothes on your back that you can make it we 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 hero worship success stories uh, we we idealize the notion of rugged individualism that it's it's never guaranteed to be easy, and it was never guaranteed that you weren't going to struggle. And yeah, some rich people got a leg up, and yeah, some people started off you know poor, disabled, you know, or at a tremendous disadvantage. But that within the American story, there's the opportunity to succeed if you work hard, if you're extremely scrappy, and if you bust your ass. Pardon my language. That's the first part of my of my principles that I love America and I think that within Ameri- the Americans the American experiment everybody has an opportunity and conservatives will say that the other thing is and this is why I'm a conservative Republican you can't it, the the world is too vast to have a, a deep view on everything I want I care about the homeless I care about the environment I care about nutrition I care about a lot of things but so but you have to prioritize and I think that that's natural and the things that conservative Republicans care a lot about foreign policy and the exercise of the American military abroad. I believe that America is the strongest, biggest kid in the schoolyard and that we have a, a mandate from God. You know, I wouldn't get as religious or not, but I've been, I, I am a, a Catholic and a Christian values are part of my origin story. But we have a mandate and an obligation to use our power for good. And that if it's in Crimea, if it's in the Middle East, if it's in Beijing, you know, if it's in North Africa, wherever it is, when bad stuff's happening in the world, there's no dad. There's no 911. There's no, there, the globe does not have a policeman. And so it's the United States' responsibility to exercise that power judiciously and, uh, you know, and with the, with the ideals of the Enlightenment to, to solve. Mike, can I, I want to cut in real quick. I think the, um, that's, that's a really interesting point. Can you, can you trace back or do you know where that traces back within conservatism, that kind of like feeling that we are we are the country that has to step in i'm assuming it has to be somewhere around world war ii but was there a certain speaker a person within the, the conservative movement that really pioneered that school of thought well there was an i mean there was uh, going into world war one uh, america was uh, was tremendously isolationist and actually this sentiment actually was not a part of the american story necessarily and that our first our first attempts to exercise it would be like you know Teddy Roosevelt for instance uh, or you know in the, in the Philippines for instance or in the Caribbean you know we started to meddle and those first forays into being this global force of good were honestly inspired primarily by like capitalism and you know various business interests and stuff like that but it's coming out of World War II where the United States the, the United States and neoconservatives see the world as very good versus evil we love good versus evil and that's why the world made a lot of sense to the neoconservative party fighting the Nazis, good versus evil, and then coming out of that into the Cold War with, with the polarity of United States versus communism. Communism was bad. We understood that. It was black and white. We fought them. We are, we are anti. We are the forces of light against the forces of, of darkness. We are the, for, we are the forces of, of good versus evil. And so that, that is that the, what the underpinnings of that, I think, would be coming out of World War II, uh, how we exercised the Marshall Plan, for instance, um, and then uh, you know playing that through uh, to us breaking down the Berlin Wall. I mean, that would be like the, the you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, you know, that, that kind of stuff right there. Like that, that, those are, that is the, you know, synchronicity. But I would think it, it started, it did not start prior to World War One. I. I would think, you know, prior to World War One, there's very few Americans that would say, hey, we should be going around the world solving the world's ills. That would be probably a weird perspective to have had prior to World War One and World War Two. But after World War Two, number one economy in the world, we figured it all out and we saved the world. And the conserv- conservatives derive a lot of meaning from that experience. Mike, neoconservatism versus just conservatism. Can, can you break that down for me? I've heard the terms and I thought that I understood it, but maybe I don't. I don't know. Could you explain that for me? Sure. Um, and I will probably do a bad job on this, but the general gist is that the neocons are a 
more hot, a, a conservative broadly. I mean, you can be a conservative as it pertains to social issues or the family, family values. Like this. Neocons, uh, neocons specifically are cold warriors. Uh, neocons are the, the, Hen, the Henry Kissinger, uh, the, the, the Richard Nixon, and they disagreed. But, uh, but these, are, these are people that see the world with a prisoner's dilemma that we are seeing the exercise of power. We assume that states act in their own interest. When we see Russia doing bounties on US soldiers, we're not surprised. Of course they are. Of course they would. That's like the Velociraptor playing with the fence. They're just trying to test to find out where the weak spot is. You anticipate people are doing that. That, that is human nature. And we apply that to the global theater. And we assume that these forces will act in their own interests and that in the world is a game theory and that the United States military is a game of chess. That's what a, that's a, what a neocon thinks. And a neocon hates communism. You got to understand that. That's foundational. Communism is the enemy. We kill communists. We put them in graves. And, 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 and that is something that our parents have been doing. And that is something that is so deep within our psyche that, that is an important thing to understand is that the neocons came from the Cold War. And, that, and that's, that's why we ended right. up in Vietnam. And that's why we've been doing all these things, fight evil. And, and they see the world, a real neocon is a, sees the world in good and evil. It sees the world as some a struggle in that, in that context. Got it. And then sort of the, you're talking about sort of patriotism and rugged individualism being part and parcel to that. So obviously communism is the opposite of capitalism, obviously. And, and even like rugged individualism can exist in the communist country, right? Does rugged individualism come, does that sort of spring from, from neoconservatism and, and into the Cold War? Like when, when did rugged individualism start? I think rugged individualism is part of like Americans origin as uh, uh, as colonists. I mean, like eventually, like we found a situation, you know, the, the Mayflower, you know, kind of the, the first colonists were escaping a situation that they found intolerable. And they launched out into this new, very, very wild world that in many cases was was very hostile to them, either you know, yeah. because of Native Americans or just because of the environment. It was very hard. And these colonists came out and this this hardiness that's like, listen, if you're in America, here's an axe and a horse and charge west and you don't like it here go chop down some wood and you know and displace the iroquois which is you know a, a con was, was something that flowed from that and there's a lot of there's a lot of bad things that came from the conquest of north america i'm not going to sit here and just defend you know the, the, right, you know, the right, right, right but but that sense right. of manifest destiny like we're here and like listen if you're if you don't like your situation go west work harder chop down some trees build yourself a farm and and you will have a shot at it if you can work extremely hard. So that that's that's what in, that's what rugged individualism. How does rugged individualism inform uh, the exercise of our nuclear foreign policy against Russia? Uh, that would be a kind of a loose logical thread that I could thread, I think. But I think that there are there different uh, extensions of the uh, of the psychology. Got it. Yeah, and sort of the the idea that you know any individual can take their destiny into their own hands. You come to this country, if you're an immigrant in, in your own volition, you can work your, your way up and, you know, really change your social trajectory. You know, I would say, you know, in my parents, well, my dad and also my grandparents, they all sort of served in the military. And, you know, I would say that, you know, they're part of the greatest generation, which I think just statistically probably demonstrated the you know, from a, from a mass population standpoint, the, the, the largest upward social mobility in American history, you know, would you, would you agree with that in terms of just sort of uh, the greatest generation and their station in life and, and kind of building the middle class? Yeah, no, no I, I think there's no question that they all came back and 
they had, you know, the, the GI Bill fueled a lot of it. And, you know, they came back from Europe feeling like liberators and they came out here and then, you know, so many great ideas and companies were launched, General, Mo you know, General Motors, General Electric, uh, and many other great American, you know, the, the idea of the American suburb and all these different ideas were actualized, you know, with the GIs coming back in the late 40s and early 50s. And I do think that that generation had that real sense. And also, listen, I'd like to add one thing to it. Um, and that's that I think for my party and for my side of things, we equate uh, the American dream with entrepreneurship, that, that patriotism right, 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 right. and, and entrepreneur, patriotism is entrepreneurship and entrepreneurism is patriotism. That there's like, you, you should have the ability to start a business and have that business be successful and have that business be unencumbered by the, by, by the government or excessive taxation, whatever. You should be able to launch out. So patriotism is like a, a form of entrepreneurship, although they didn't use the word entrepreneurship. It's a more recent word, but, uh, but that, that's very much in the same ethos. And I do think that the greatest generation was a very entrepreneurial generation. I mean, mm. they, they came back and they, they went to work. You know what I mean? They're putting up their houses and they're, you know, building, building, getting their cars and getting their washing machines putting it together. Do you think, you know, and the reason and far brought up sort of the, the New Deal, and we talk about the New Deal all the time. Do you think the upward mobility that the greatest generation was able to achieve, it's my argument just through reading is that that is not achievable without post-war quote unquote socialist policies or, or sort of New Deal policies that created this sort of sort of government backed intervention to create this baseline of, of prosperity that kind of was the bedrock of that social mobility. And then, you know, in terms of individual ruggedness, that really, that sort of government foundational policy springboarded all of the individual ruggedness from that. You know, so I, I would probably push back a little bit on, on the idea that the greatest generation was able to achieve the kind of prosperity that they did simply through entrepreneurship without you know, it's my argument that they actually were able to, they could not achieve it without the sort of quote unquote socialist policies from the New Deal that is actually antithetical to, to entrepreneurship and capitalism and rugged individualism. So I would, I mean, listen, I, I, I actually, I, I, agree, I agree with part of what you said and I disagree with part of what you said. And the part mm -hmm. I would disagree with is just the word, just the use of the word socialism. And by the way, if you ever want to like rile, like, you know, get like a, a conservative riled up, just use the word communism, socialism, right. or, Mar or Marxism. Course. And of immediately course. it's like, we just jump in the, <laughs> jump in the foxhole and load the 50 cow because it's on, you know what I mean? So like, yeah. and, and again, you got to remember these guys, we've, this, my, my side has spent the last 50 years killing communists. So anything that looks like the enemy is going to prick up our, our, you know, the antenna. But let me, sure. let me address specifically what you're saying. I think a hundred percent, I don't think anybody here is, and myself included is going to say that all of the prosperity America experienced after the 1950s was because of like the clever entrepreneurship of the greatest generation. But there was this enormous creation of value in America because our economy was so robust. This wouldn't have mm -hmm. been possible without the United States taking the number one seat on the global theater. Our economy yeah, is up here in two, three, four, two, three, four, and five were a mile behind us. So yeah, there was this enormous amount of prosperity and it was trickled down across all of our systems, people, corporations, et cetera. And so if you're using the word socialism to, to define how big, uh, or, you know, or I would say, level you know, prosperity is not, not social, like the policies being socialist, you know, not, not necessarily a system of socialism, not sort of per se, but sort of programs that are, that are socialist, which is basically just to say people paying taxes, taxes going into a public good that's shared by everybody, you know, that program. Yeah. Programs being socialist, not necessarily a system of socialism. Socialism. Yeah, 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 yeah. The spoils were uh, were acquired by us as a country at the country right. level, 
and yeah. then and then at the country level it had to fall down to the individual level so yes right. i would i would 100 percent agree with that i don't think the average cold I would, I would think the average greatest generation person himself or herself personally you know what i mean built that it was because of the right. united states at the country level and then it trickled down to the individual level for sure you know and i think it it, it is that framing that I often think about when, you know, you fast forward to, to today and you go on Instagram or you or you go on, you know, whatever. And, and then just sort of the inequities that persist to this day that you can trace back, you know, certainly to, uh, you know, the New Deal and beyond that. People saying, OK, inequities are real. That's that's fine. You got the statistics, you know, boom, boom, boom. Cool. But then prescribing to combat those inequities, you know, we're talking about mass systemic populations now, not just an individual. Individuals, if you're talking about an individual, sure, fine, you know, pull yourself, do, do the thing. But from a mass systemic population standpoint, prescribing to uh, groups that suffer those kinds of inequities, uh, simply prescribing them to uh, saying entrepreneurship, you know, rugged individualism, you know, uh, sort of do better is in a serious way prescribing that to them to then say combat these inequalities with with just that is completely uh, sort of dishonest and elides the fact of the new deal and its part in building a lot of what the greatest generation uh, was able to achieve and 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 then sort of sort of go from there so i think that those two things are in conflict and are in fact simply a double standard um that is a historical for this group that we prescribe entrepreneurship to Without, without, you know, saying, oh, this other group that we're comparing you to, we're comparing your disparity to, actually got a huge leg up from a socialist program uh, that is the New Deal in, po in, in, in the boom of the post-war economy. You know what I mean? So I, I, I see that there's an inconsistency there, and I always want to say, well, you know, you got to look at history in order to really understand that and to, to, to really understand prescribing entrepreneurship truly understates the task at which you need to lift up a mass systemic a group of people, uh, you know, to combat that inequity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, let me, okay. So, let, so then we, we talked a little bit about my, you know, my, my foundational kind of, you know, the, the roots of conservatism. So let's, let's talk a little bit about potentially modern day, if you're okay to, to move it forward, because actually this is, I think, where the most interesting conversation is right now. I think, yeah, yeah. And, and and by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna argue kind of both sides. I'm gonna say at times I'll say what I feel, but at times I'll just say what the conservative side says. Okay. Because I myself am in an, in an examination, and so so I may I may say some things, and you know don't you know don't misquote me here potentially, but I'm gonna no. try to I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna try to articulate the conservative side. Know that not all of this is necessarily something that I that I truly myself am rock solid sure. on. Yeah. The conservative the conservative side would say, okay, yeah, we agree, we concede that things have not been fair tremendously unfair basically that 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 unfair is the default and actually that if you look for examples of fairness throughout history you'll probably come up empty-handed uh however you know there's like kind of you look at the forest or you look at the trees and this is where i think a lot of the conservative conservative struggle is because at a forest level almost any statistic about blacks or minorities show that they are not participating in the American dream and that they're not, they're not reaping the boons here of this very prosperous society. I think you can look like the statistic I was looking at is, you know, average household wealth between whites and blacks, for instance, like it's clearly that the, that, 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 the, that blacks as a population segment as a forest are not participating in the same equal percentage with, you know, the spoils of this prosperous society. And I, that, that that that's a sadness to me, um, but at a tree, you know, forest versus trees. But individually, there's so the, a conservative would say 
would use Barack Obama, you know, was, was president or in that, you know, there's so many examples of, of black and minority entrepreneurs who've been able to succeed. And then mm -hmm. actually, if you work really hard, you know, there's been many other population groups that started off with nothing at a tremendous disadvantage that didn't get a generational pass down of wealth, didn't get a mm -hmm. lot of things handed to them. You, we all, the conservatives love looking at Asian populations who showed up right, in America. Right. Classic the, model the, minority. Yeah. It's the it's a classic yeah, model minority. It's a classic example, and, and Kendi like, speaks about this as well. Like, like they just figured out they they decided to make it like this, you know, cultural value that you need to be good at math. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, you turn around, and now you know if Harvard just opened up the doors, equal playing field, everyone at Harvard would be Asian. You know what I mean? Like, and so like conservatives point to that and say, look, no, actually, yes, yes, and and mass. It does seem to be unfair, but at an individual level, America wasn't supposed to give equality of condition. America was supposed to be equality of opportunity. And even if you're starting 10 yards behind, mm. or even if you got a broken leg, mm. the lane in front of you is still open. And then anybody uh, can run that lay, run that race. LBJ, yeah. The Howard speech, LBJ, I think, I think you were probably citing from. Um, that's, I, you know, I, I love this. This is, this is good. This gets out a lot of things. Two things that I, I would want to point to when you do the group comparison thing, right? And you say, okay, these minority groups who are non-white, who you could say are discriminated against, you know, you can, you could say that they're, you know, historically have been discriminated against, and maybe there are some disparities here or there statistically. You know, I think the mistake there with that comparison is it is not an apples to apples comparison. So hear me out. Not just I'm not I'm not, you know, not in the context of like the oppression Olympics where it's like, oh, this person, this group got lynched more or something. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the way that the American system, the way that sort of prosperity historically, you know, has worked, has been when you talk, let's 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 say wealth in, in particular. Wealth by its very nature is multi-generational versus income, it's just tied to your labor. An individual can get a high income or a low income, and but that's separate from wealth, um, which is inherently multi-generational, which is a person's wealth position while they're alive is not wholly, but primarily determined from the wealth positions of their parents and their grandparents. And um, sort of the inheritances, whether it be passed down of property, whether that it be in vivo transfers, which is like a Sandy Darity term, where it's just a fancy word for like transfers of wealth uh, while the person's still alive, whether that be your your help, your folks helping you with the down payment of the house or with, with college tuition or something like that. But wealth in itself, I think, is probably the, the, sort of the, the main thing that needs to be looked at in terms of the well-being or the status of, of groups compared to each other. So if wealth is multi-generational, Black folks who have, in terms of generations, have been in America as long as, you know, like early European settlers is the indigenous people um, from a group have all of their generations in America. So historically, you know, they trace back to the Amer American system and sort of the, the lack of wealth building opportunities. That's different from immigrants, especially post 65 immigrants, right? The, the sort of the Immigration Act of 1965, you know, which, which basically undid the Immigration Act of 1924 that was racist and, and based on eugenics to keep out individuals of quote unquote lower races, which included Jewish and and Polish and Italians, you know, sort of Southern Southern Europe, and of course, Asians. Um, so the 1964 combats that, which is part of the Civil Rights Act of the 60s, which says, okay, let's open the doors for immigration, but here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna create a filtering system that is based on merit, 
based on educational indicators and based on basically corporate needs, corporate sponsorships. So then in 1965, you get an influx, most of the, uh, of the immigrants coming from Asia, whether it be Chinese or Southern Asian Indians, but you're getting folks that are disproportionately educated and come from wealth positions uh, that are tied back to their wealth positions from their, their country of origin, right? So it is, it is a sort of a different type of person you're getting with their wealth position than, you know, uh, Black population that have been deprived of wealth through multi-generationals in America. So you're getting, you're, you're getting this sort of education-heavy group, and you're saying, oh, it must be sort of a natural culture of Chinese people that they just need to know math and that they're just hardworking, when in fact, it is the American policy, the 65 Immigration Act, that is filtering for that. So you're front-loading people to come in that are disproportionately educated and, and have the means of coming to the country. So the comparison between Chinese or Asian Americans as a group and their well-being to African Americans is a completely fraught comparison. It doesn't work. It's it's an apples to orange comparison, right? You know, so so you can, can point I, can to I, those can groups I, and can, yeah, yeah, can sure. I can, so I'm gonna jump in. So, so I'm gonna jump in on two yeah. points in that. First of all, I don't inherently think that that is a bad that 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 attracting the top talent in the entire world is a bad thing. I actually, no, not at all. I'm not saying that it's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I mean, like I said, and it is like you know Operation Paperclip, right? Like we went out to try to find the creators of the V two of the V of the VF V two rock the rocket that the Nazis had. We went to like, and we ended up having this program where we got Werner von Braun and, you know, Einstein right, and all these right. guys. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. That, that is American. You know what, you wanna get smart? Come to Harvard, Stanford, Princeton. Don't go to University of Moscow. I don't even know what the smart, you know, the, the Moscow equivalent would be. And that's a good thing. You wanna, you wanna be the, the smartest in the entire world? It's an American institution that's gonna get you there. And I think that that is, fun, that is good for everybody. We want the smartest people in the entire world competing over ideas because guess what? Because because we want Google, Facebook, Instagram, you know, we want the and and Tesla coming out of America, right, 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 forever. But I would challenge that many or the majority or some meaningful percentage of immigrants that came to America came with with carrying a lot of generational wealth. I mean, I'm sure that that is the case. I, you know, there's people that fled the you know, the Iranian Revolution in the late 1970s that came with a lot of yeah. wealth, and then there's there's plenty of people that showed up here with absolutely nothing. And the rags to riches story, and again, it's a dramatized, you know, kind of caricature of, of things. But right, right. That, that rags to riches story, the, the American conservative has the rags to riches story on his mantle and says right. that rag, yeah. rags, <laughs> it says the rags to riches, you know what I mean? That, that expression just rolls off your tongue and that that is part of the American thing. Yeah, sure, some people showed up with wealth and what are you going to do about that? You know, some of the earliest colonists came up with more gold than others. But, the, but that, that rugged individual kind of foundational thing about America is that that's great and there will always be rich people with, with privilege and, 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 and opportunity, but that you don't need it to succeed. And that if you work really hard, you can start off in the gutter and you can make it in America. That remains to be one of our driving principles. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that's definitely fair because you, you post-65 immigrants, right? And I want to sort of bracket off. And I want to talk about early immigrants as well. You talk about the Irish and, and the Italians and stuff you know, that came before the Civil War and sort of the 1830s and stuff like that. That's a different story before the 24 Act to exclude them. So post-65 immigrants, it is, you know, the case that that policy filtered for folks with, with education and, you know, know-how to, to come and work for American companies, that kind of stuff. But it is also the fact that it allowed for folks that sort of chain migration, I guess, I guess what we call it, or I don't even know if that's pejorative now. It kind of feels like it is. But, you know, the fact that you can come if you have relatives, close relatives here, and, and, and you can come and sort of live with them, you know. So it's not all the fact that 
they all had superior education than, you know, other other immigrants that didn't come here and that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, I, and I take your point there that not all of them, but I think the problem is when, and I'm not saying that you're saying this, but I think popular conservative logic around the American dream is when Black people complain about, well, the American dream doesn't work for us because, you know, in fact, we can talk about with stamp and stuff, the American dream is actually built on the destruction of our well-being, but also, you know, into past slavery, past Jim Crow, that kind of thing. Even to today, you know, the American dream doesn't, it doesn't hold the same credence for Black folks because it never worked for us. But when you, when conservatives say, hey, listen, Black people, you need to do what the Chinese did. You need to do what you know, little Italy did, you need to do what, uh, you know, all these other sort of groups that have dealt with so much discrimination of some degree, you just need to do what they did because they don't have income disparities. They don't have, you know, wealth disparities the same way as you do. So that kind of comparison and pointing to them as an example to be emulated is complete bullshit, you know? So it's the comparison that I buck against, not that the 65 Immigration Act was bad or bad policy or something, but it, but it, it is that that is sort of, a, I would say, is a racist double standard. Again, not saying that you're saying this, but like that logic that seems to be found in the conservative party to rebut against affirmative action, for example, is interesting, right? So, but to your point about immigrants that came here with nothing, that is very much the case. You know, the Irish, you know, I've been reading this book about the busing riots in Boston, which my dad lived through, and it does a huge, huge history about the Irish coming in post-Civil War in Boston. And obviously you can talk about New York with the 63 draft riots. The Irish were treated like shit. They were, you know, put up in tenements, right? Far, you know, this in, in, in reading it. Uh, yeah, Irish need not apply. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Irish need not apply, right? That is, they were completely oppressed and they weren't even considered white you know, and they died, they were impoverished and so forth. But I think the biggest shift that changed and that continued into, you know, uh, sort of World War One, World War Two, and, and, and Italians and other groups. Uh, but I think that the, the biggest change around that, which people I think forget is, you know, and there's books about, you know, about this. And I think Ira Katz Nelson probably writes about this is that those groups, the, the thing that turned the corner for them is that they were included in the New Deal right? This new erection of a sprawling suburban uh, uh, middle class that didn't exist before, they were excluded initially through zoning and segregated to some degrees, but they were included in the New Deal and sort of brought into the middle class in that way. And they sort of, quote unquote, became white in terms of policies that buttressed the GI Bill, that buttressed the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, and also, you know, racial covenants, um, you know, that William Levitt, you know, had to abide by in building his his homes and everything. And even that goes down to sort of the, the credit system. And I think probably one of the most glaring examples, maybe an anecdote, and I, I don't know if you got to this in the, in, in the color of money, is prior to the New Deal, the Italians in California, I think in San Francisco, were, you know, discriminated against. They were zoned out of mainstream neighborhoods, and they created their own segregated bank called the Bank of Italy. And as a part of the Italians being a part of the, the New Deal, and then when banks were called upon to peddle these federally insured loans for home loans, da, 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 that bank, as a part of that program, grew into what is today the Bank of America, right? And, and you talk about, that's an amazing accomplishment. And that's not something that like the Italians didn't work hard to do, but it is with the, you know, the intervention of, of government policies that created that bank and that community to flourish in a way that it didn't for Black communities or Black banks. You know what I mean? I think that that is probably one of the more glaring examples that I would point to, to saying you 
can't necessarily pull as a as a group pull yourself up through rugged individualism. Maybe you can theoretically, but historically that has not happened um, without intervention from from the government. Okay, so then, so so actually, so Eddie, so I'd love to to talk about that because I I think that that's like right now there's a lot of conservatives that feel you know what we we acknowledge and recognize that there has been a lot of of systemic racism and oppression, mm -hmm. uh, and and that sucks. And I, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean like truly. Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I'm I'm like we 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 recognize that. Yeah. But and here is the but. But here we go. It's 2020. Yeah. Here we are. We're, we're all we're all sitting here. It's whatever day of the week it is. It's a Tuesday. Yeah. How we we can only flagellate ourselves on the back and you know walk around with sackcloth so much. Right, right. We, we are a we yeah. are a forward facing you know society here. Like we need to build. We we need to move forward. How yeah. do we 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 feel the the conservative side would say you know what you that there's there's been a black president. We are aggressively right now right. trying to smoke right. out and out racism as as mu as much as we can. You know, anytime right. we find, anytime you find clearly identifiable racism right now, that person is like, you know, front page of the New York Times, get them out. You know what I mean? Like we are, we are doing <laughs> yeah. all we can. What can we do right now? Like what, what, it, what is the forward facing yeah. motion to, 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 to get it going? Like, let's go. Yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. We've, we've eliminated the laws. There's no more redlining. You know what I mean? Like there's, like I there's black millionaires. They're, 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 they're there. Like I, I feel, <laughs> right. feel that. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So, so, so no, that's, how do we, how do we move good. forward? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I think the first thing is, you know, stop the self-flagellation. You know, there's no need for it. You know, I'm not, I don't, I, like, like white fragility. I haven't read that book. I don't think I'm ever going to read it. But like that line of logic where individuals are racist in their heart or something, I don't give a shit about the hearts and minds of white people. I don't give a shit about individuals that call me the N-word or something like, you know what I mean? I don't care about Amy Cooper. I don't give a fuck. The thing is that racism is in and of itself a system. Racism is not prejudice. Racism can produce prejudiced people, but racism in and of itself is a systemic double standard. You know what I mean? So it, let's stop chasing down boogeyman racist people or the trolls under the bridge or the Donald Trump. Like, we need to talk about like the systemic stuff. And, you know, defunding the police is interesting, but it's not quite going to get us there. I think the view of this is, and you talked about it perfectly, redlining is over. But I, I think, you know, as a country, we haven't grappled with the, the modern gap that redlining created, right? So if, if we want to talk about, you know, where do we go from here? We got to think about corrective policies, corrective justices, right? I, I always say this, you know, solutions to the problem have to be akin to their creation. You know, I don't think that, you know, looking at a 10 to one wealth gap and using opportunity zones, for example, you know, that's a complete band-aid, you know, or, or even, you know, how Mercer Baradaran, you know, would say, that's like, that's like saying, giving somebody with cancer a free car. Like it doesn't even get to the core of the actual issue. Right. So it's in order to move forward, corrective policies have to be looked at. And in order to really truly understand what the problem is, you have to use history. You have to look to see how past injustices have persisted into modern inequities. And I would say like something like H.R. 40. Right. Which is it's just obviously, you know, you know, I imagine, you know, you say like reparations and stuff. That's obviously probably as, as worse as communism to, to conservative ears. But, you know, it, it truly is. H.R. 40 is a study to say, hey, listen, you know, 
Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote something interesting about reparations and he mentioned slavery a little bit, but it's mostly about housing discrimination and how you trace that into the, into the present. You know, how do we combat and basically say, hey, listen, you know, one thing could be all of these neighborhoods or all of the people that were denied GI, the GI Bill, all of the black soldiers that were denied the GI Bill after World War II, give them and their family pensions to correct their denial of the GI Bill, which would have created upward mobility for them. That is a one small example, but it is really those things that we need to look at. And that doesn't concern us with Karens and Beckys and all of that shit. I don't give a shit, but I think, you know, that's where we have to start. And I love how, you, you know, Barack Obama, black billionaires, that's absolutely true. And it's always been the case, you know, Frederick Douglass, that individuals can live in the system and, and flourish and do their thing. But when it comes to st- statistical disparities, the average black person, the average white person who are just mediocre, you know, the average black person is not going to be able to do what Barack Obama did, nor should they have to. They should be able to just sort of cash in on their American citizenship just the way that everybody else did in order to uplift themselves to a baseline of well-being, or we should put together corrective policies to make sure that they get there because they haven't been there. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I think about it. So I, I like that you are that you are not biting on the whole Karen thing. Um, right. because, <laughs> because like there is, as bad as McCarthyism was as an excess of the right, there is mm. this new, new McCarthyism, which is the excess of the left. And if you stray off the talk track of the left, the woke mob will will burn you even if you're a democrat you know what i mean like no no one's safe and that and that that it, and they, there is just this unjudicious just application of like we just need to burn and burn them down and, yeah. you know, and, no, and no one's safe and if we dig up something on your facebook from 10 years ago you better watch out cuz your career is toast <laughs> like that 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 is a new right. form of mccarthyism and 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 conservatives are very fearful of that and reject yeah. that wholeheartedly. But I know, but we're, we, you, yeah. you, you agree with me on that. And I think we all probably- I agree, agree. I agree with you, yeah. So, so, you, know, so I, yeah. Well, I, you know, whether I would characterize it as, as you know, sort of the new McCarthy, you know, but I agree, there are some things, there are a lot of just sort of overcorrections that completely, you know, hurry past anything that would be measured or, you know, that I agree. I, but I also see them and be like, eh, I mean, well, Ed, I think when yeah, we talked expect, about this, yeah. the, the reason I think when we talked about getting frustrated by it, it doesn't mean that some of them shouldn't be smoked out. Like there's some obvious like things, but the problem where it gets us into is then we envelop all our time and just reaction and frustration yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, into yeah, like, yeah. into focusing on one person who right. said something really stupid, ignorant, you know, whatever yeah. you want it to be, instead of actually taking the bigger step back and saying, you know, how are we thinking about education? and I, I think, I mean, we're giving Mercer so much, much love. I think it was her, but she yeah. said something like, I'm sick of like white fragility. Let's talk about power fragility or something to that point. She was like, Word. I want yeah. white people to be storming like, you know, PTA meetings and like educational boards and talking about equity within that, not necessarily just like losing their mind for 48 hours about Karen, yeah. you know, yelling about her dog. Or um, the system that, you know, makes it that property taxes fund local institutions, right? That is where segregation where like American, you know, apartheid, that is, that completely perpetuates modern inequalities like that, you know, sort of that low, which I think is a Supreme Court decision. I forget where it was exactly, but like those kinds of things, you know what I mean? But sorry to cut you off. Mike, so you so what, what, let me say something. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to articulate something that, that I did some, in preparation for this conversation, I spoke to people that are close to me that are very Republican, more Republican than I am. And here's the thing, like here, here is how a lot of conservatives, I think, feel right now. 
the extent to which I believe in this or not, I'm going to redact my own ascent. I'm just going to articulate a, a common sentiment of the right right now. And yeah. that is Black Lives Matter, which is the, the flag behind which many people are marching, which, by the way, I right. don't think was even prepared to be the vanguard of all of this. I, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I think it's actually it, it's potentially a disservice that Black Lives Matter, which wasn't a wholly baked political ideology, was but it was rather just a reaction to some events. That's sure. a different conversation, but I'm, I'm just saying mm -hmm. that 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 Black Lives Matter is marching forward, and then we're like, we're like, we're pissed and we're really mad, and they, they we're like, okay, you got your fifth, you're in your 15 minutes of fame right now. What are your demands? You know, people, <laughs> and they're like, our first demand is a bunch of people need to be fired out of their jobs because they said some some stuff off the talk. Our second demand is we want a bunch of we want a bunch of statues torn down. And our <laughs> demand is we want a bunch of schools renamed. And then our fourth, you know what I mean? And it's like, all right, it, first of all, yeah. some of that stuff's a little bit weird, but say we just yeah. gave you all of those things yeah. right now. <laughs> Does that get you anywhere? Like, you, you yeah. like, but fine, fine, magic wand. Washington and Lee is now Washington and Douglas. And fine, every single statue is just got, just, mm -hmm. just got evaporated two seconds ago. And everybody that said anything bad on their Facebook is now out of their corporate job and they're fired. <laughs> and, and, and Aren't we the same place? Like, does that help? Does that help black people? I mean, I'm true, true question. That's how I think yeah. a lot of conservatives feel. And they feel yeah, it's yeah. just, it's just setting fire to things without being constructive or, 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 or productive. Well, Mike, yeah. so I mean, but you know, clearly that I would say, and maybe I think we are way, we, me and I were talking about this. We're, at, we were excited for this conversation because we're way too in our own bubble, right? With some of this stuff, like we're, yeah. we're close to a lot of like hardcore activists who we think are actually saying a lot of the right stuff. But, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I mean, what are the people you're talking to when they hear defund the police? Do they, is it pure anarchy in their minds? What, what's the next stage? Oh yeah. Stage? Oh yeah. 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 They, and they, and they, and, and by the way, guys, we could go for a, a much longer time on this. I have like, <laughs> probably like 10 more minutes. And I, if I'm ever, if this show even gets aired, if you're even listening to this, guys, I, I already got farther than I thought I was going to. Uh, <laughs> I, I anticipate this will sit on the cutting room floor. Um, but, uh, but listen, you know, when Republicans, when, when Republicans hear defund, first of all, their immediate reaction is rock back and get your fist up, first of all. But I think we can yeah. actually coach them through that. And I think and I think the way to do that, by the way, is the opioid epidemic that affected a lot of white people. And I think flat out you say this, my brother was affected by the opioid epidemic. And here's my here's my kryptonite to the defund thing. If my brother, mm -hmm. who's going on two years sober right now, and, and I love him very much, and has put a lot of hard work in, but if my brother mm -hmm. four years ago was picked up by a police officer, you know, say he was nodding off in a Starbucks, he would go to jail, not not a mental health place, not an mm. addiction place. You know, that is that to me is defund. Defund mm. is because mm. he should he should not have been treated in a criminal mm. protocol. He should have been treated in a mental health and addiction protocol. And I think that there's a lot of white people who are, have been affected by addiction, for instance. And I think that addiction and, and how we've treated the opioid, I would think that that would be a very uh, bipartisan way of understanding how social services can be reimagined and that some of those those jobs that we uh, that we incorrectly get delegated to police officers, which should go to social services, I think that that could be a way of of unwinding the defund. That's just my mm. is my idea. Is my yeah, idea. no, that's that is exactly that is exactly it. You know, I 100% agree. You know, with that, you know, that anecdote of of your brother. That's definitely it. I think that the defund the police thing. You know, when I heard it I, at first, I was, it was very jarring to me too. I was like, well, I was like, what? You know, I but I think it gets to it begins to get at the systemic, which is to say, 
residential segregation creates black communities, redline communities, right? That the way that they're set up is they are devoid of all public investments except for police and incarceration. They are devoid of obviously housing wealth, you know, government-backed housing wealth, which then is the basis of property taxes to fund libraries, grocery stores, schools, obviously, all of these things, you know, that create this dilapidated neighborhood is a product of government disinvestment. And the only actual social investment is police and incarceration. So it, there's sort of a, a clear double standard when it comes to public investment when compared to neighborhoods where I grew up. I grew up in New Hampshire. In my neighborhood in New Hampshire, which is a suburb, I never, I don't think I've seen the police once in my neighborhood growing up. And I would always be outside, you know, with friends and biking around, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't remember seeing the police once. Like they didn't, it feel like they didn't even use the police in the same way. But the reason that police never came is because you know, there was all these other social investments in the neighborhood that created it to flourish, that basically mitigated any crime or joblessness or poverty. That is not the same of segregated neighborhoods where it is chaotic by dint of social, the lack of social investments. There's poverty, there's joblessness, there's concentration, you know, fewer square miles with people living on top of each other, which exacerbates crime and you throw guns in the mix of violent crime. So then from there on out, it is a more troubled neighborhood where police don't necessarily come in to combat that, but they come in to lock everybody up. So it is this sort of institutional double standard that, you know, you can start by defunding the police, but I think that it is very, you know, only the, the tip of the iceberg, quite frankly, you know, so that's how I think about it. But I think- I, it, I, I, yeah. I, I agree, I agree. Let me, let me, let me say one other thing. Like, so uh, there's a, a line from the Black Lives Matter website that uh, that is anathema to the conservative side. So Black Lives Matter website says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirements by supporting each other's extended uh, families and villages that collectively care for one another. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. That is, that is a, and that, and that, you know, defund will get you riled up. But once you say we're going to, we're going to, we want to, we, we are against the nuclear family, the Western nuclear family. Yeah. There are a lot of, like that for yeah. conservatives. The family is where education starts, is where literacy starts, is where value starts. The family value and unit, like like Republican politicians and conservatives spend a lot of their careers bolstering family values. Family yeah. values is something they talk about, they reinforce, and the family value structure is part and parcel to the conservative worldview. And so to yeah. have the Black Lives Matter march with defund, okay, whatever, we can educate people on defund, defund, we'll figure that one out. But to say we reject the, the family structure, you're going to lose the whole party. And actually, the, the, the president of the Heritage Foundation, which is a prominent conservative think tank, just re, re, her name's Kay something or other, did a big op-ed about the fact that like, Black Lives Matter is against the family. And if Black Lives Matter, if that, gets, if that is so much more damaging than defund, if, if yeah. Black Lives Matter gets painted as anti-family, it's done. And, and yeah. the, the, the battle lines will be so deeply drawn. And honestly, I'm not sure I'm going to be on the BLM side on that one. I think I am a pro-family guy. I, I do believe in the institution of the family. And I also support LGBTQ rights. And if you don't want to live in a, a nuclear family with 2.2 kids, fine. You don't have to. Go live in an artist commune and be gay and, and paint your whole body purple. That's cool, too. America, America has that opportunity for you. But the family unit is extremely yeah. important to conservative Republicans. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, what I would say to that is, it, to your point of, like, BLM, probably not in its origin being conceived as this will be the face of the movement and it kind of just happened. 
that's interesting. I, you know, I would have to like look at the web. I haven't, I read some of the webs. I need to look at it, but I, I would just say that, you know, I don't agree with that either, like disrupting the family unit or something, however they meant it versus however it's perceived. You know, I have to look into that. But I would just say, you know, I, Kendi does a great job in stand. And I think you all could, could see within the Black liberation movement or whatever you call it, there's factionalism. There are factions within the movement that war against each other and disagree with each other. And it's very complicated, even though from the outside, maybe it seems like we're all marching in unison, like this is sort of some unitary consciousness to the Black, uh, you know, liberation movement or, or progress. But that's very much not the case. And, you know, you could see the way that I, there's a lot of Black people that want to like, you know, headhunt all of the Karens. Like, I, I could give a shit. I don't agree with that. I think that that's not time spent. So so I would just say that, you know, maybe that aspect of BLM, you know, I don't agree with, I would worry that uh, the complications or the contradictions or the factionalism within the Black movement gets overlooked and sometimes caricatured as a point, and it becomes easier to disavow, you know, the movement as a whole, you know, when when you're able to point to different things or inconsistencies, you know, so I agree with it. So, so I would just say that BLM being raised up as sort of the all- movement thing or, or something, you know, I would just, you know, push against that. Yeah, listen, I mean, I, I, I agree, because I actually don't think that the cause of black people and mass in America, I, I don't actually think that the, yeah. black, the that the BLM platform is what every black person holds in their hearts. Yeah, right, that, right. To, just to speculate, because that would mean that we have a lot more Marxists than I thought. And that, by the way, that would trouble conservatives. Too. But, 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 but um, I'll say this, guys, and, and you know, I apologize, I have to jump. But I mean, like, very truly, like, I think the way to bring us all together on this is like the conservative party, like, we just don't do a lot of blaming there's not a lot of like how to how to point who's wrong. That's just not we've not built muscles around that. And we've not spent a lot of our time like you know, we were like Salem witch people. Well, well we got to get them out. All right, let's keep moving forward. Right. You know what I mean, then this guy over right. here did some racist stuff. Got to get rid of him. But we're just constantly moving forward. Like in, in that kind of sense right now that the right does not feel that from the left. The right feels that the left is mad, justified to some degree, but that the left is focused on tearing down and, and, and pointing blame and ripping down statues and tearing down people's careers and, 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 and that kind of tearing down destructive thing, that is the, the right rejects that. And the right would, I think that the way that to come together is to say, you know, we're going to recognize some of that maybe in a couple of years or maybe tomorrow, whatever, there's going to be some statues and some renaming stuff. And that's part of it. But the number one mm-hmm. is let's fund uh, uh, black entrepreneurs. And number two, let's get resources to blighted black communities. And if the federal opportunity zone program was inefficient at doing it, and that it just ends up being some tax break for rich corporations, which is potentially the case. Okay, so then let's figure out a way to get to get you working and get and get creating jobs. And let's foster entrepreneurship and let's foster a rugged individualism of that black man or woman, that that young guy coming out of high school, you know, middle school, whatever it is. Let's find that person right now. Let's get them the tools to succeed because that is in everybody's best interest. The conservatives are capitalists. We just want more commerce. We want more Googles. We want more Teslas. We want more ideas. And if and that is our that was what gets conservatives excited and is what's going to bring conservatives to the to the table here in a collaborative way. It's focusing on how to move forward, uh, for that move forward and create more opportunity. And Ponte, so that's, so what we, that's what we want. I know you got to jump, but I would say my my quick reaction to that is in so many things that we've done over history, uh, and we'll have to have a lot of this conversation for a bit later. We have just wanted to steamroll through everything, right? We never do like the deeper eval of kind of like what brought us there. 
And that's why I know I, I agree with that. I'm sure when, when conservatives hear HR 40, it just like it, attached to reparations, it makes their, their skin want to crawl. And it, of course, it immediately goes back into, oh, people just want checks. But the way I, I really do think about it is how do we actually pause for a second instead of just wanting to immediately just steamroll forward and throw opportunity zones, this and that, and keep doing these things and like pause and truly evaluate the consequences of what we have done and why we have such an enormous issue in our country with the way we have treated, you know, black people. And it might not be checks. It might, you know, manifest in all these different ways, but we're constantly playing this like, you know, this, this game of like, we need to burn everything down. Can we just like move it forward and just like, we get you, but like, and it's like this back and forth, back and forth. And I just don't think we get anywhere until we like truly, really evaluate like the damage that's been done. So that's my two cents on it. That's fair, man. That, I mean, that, that's fair. And, and listen, I, I, you know, the fact that there were statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know what I mean? Like it, like, this, there you I, go. I like, dude, I, I see no reason I, that, that to me, yes, that we, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. You right. know what I mean? Like, 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 like as a society, we've got a lot of very smart and talented people and we can figure all this stuff out. Um, I say, guys, I, I hope to any, if, if this gets published, I hope to, any, <laughs> I hope to any, any conservatives and Republicans out there, I hope I did you, I do hope I did our party a good enough job. And, and to Eddie and Mike, I really appreciate the invitation. And I, guys, I, I truly like, I, like, I love you guys. I love what you're doing. I've, I've taken a lot of meaning and inspiration from your podcast. I appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, I'd be delighted to talk and, and help in any way that I possibly can. And I'll tell you, I'll do my part. I'm just going to keep reading, man. I'm, 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 I'm going to read Kendi. I'm reading Coates. I'm doing my homework. And I'm going to educate nice. myself on the left so that when I come to these conversations in the future, that we're all speaking the same language here. And I'm going to do my part. And I hope everybody else does, you know, does their homework as well. Appreciate sure. you, homie. Thanks, brother. This was great. Thanks, thanks right, man, guys. Take care. Well. You too. Yeah, man.